Well, welcome to worship. We're glad you're here, especially if you're uh, new to ECC. We're happy to have you. Uh, for those of you who are regulars and um, actually remembered to get up for the 9.30 service instead of the 11, when you leave, don't give those folks who are walking in a scornful look because there will be people. They'll be walking in for the 11 o'clock service pretty soon. They will have forgotten um, so uh, just give them a blessing or say Merry Christmas or something like that. I wanted to begin this morning actually with a pop quiz. It's kind of like being in class, right? The teacher gives a pop quiz. Now, the pop quiz doesn't appear in your bulletins, but if you'd like to, you can take out a pen or pencil and record your answers to see how close you are. Okay, so here's the pop quiz. It's about the magi or the wise men. Okay, and here are the questions. How many wise men were there who visited Jesus? How many? Okay, you write down your answer. Second question, were they kings from the Orient? Okay, second question. I guess we could do a third question there. If the Orient, what countries in the Orient? Okay, uh, third question. When did they arrive to see baby Jesus? And the fourth question is, what were their names? Okay. So maybe you don't know that either. Uh, let me give you the answer to those questions, uh, the pop quiz, and see how you did. The answer to the first question, we have no idea right? <laughs> we know there were three gifts, but we don't know that there were just three wise men. As a matter of fact, the Eastern Church for centuries has suggested there were 12 wise men. I think it's somehow connected to 12 days of Christmas, but I'm not sure about that. So we don't really know how many wise men were there. Answer to the second question, were they kings from the Orient? That sounds really good in the song, but we don't know that either. Uh, we three kings of Orient are. That was a tradition that developed and is not necessarily, of course, in the text. We don't know that they were kings. When did they arrive? Well, they didn't arrive at the manger. So, I'm sorry. It just, it's not true. I mean, it's a great picture, but the shepherds were there, not the wise men. Because it's even clear from the text that it was probably two years after the birth of Jesus that the wise men saw the star and showed up, okay? Fourth question, what were their names? If you said Gaspar, Balthasar, and Melchior, you were really good because most people don't even know those names, but you were especially good because somebody made those names up and you believe it. I think it was a monk who had some spiked eggnog, and uh, he said, come on, let's give these guys a name. No, really, we don't know for sure what their names were, but tradition does say that that might have been the names of the three wise men. The point is, we don't know much about these folks, right? And we build traditions around them, and it's, it's delightful to do so, and maybe some of the stories are true. So what do we know about these fellows who showed up that we call wise men are magi. Well, what we know about magi is they were, they were scholars, usually, and often in the court of a king. 
For instance, Magi were famous for studying philosophy and astrology, which everybody believed in back then, the rotation of the planets and the ways in which that means something for the future or for the present. We also know that Magi, those type of individuals, were probably the people that uh, Daniel served with under Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Uh, Jewish literature was integrated with Babylonian literature during the exile. So it's likely also that because of Jewish, shall we say, study centers in Babylon, these individuals, far after the exile is over, understand things concerning prophecy related to the coming of a king, namely Messiah, Jesus, as the church has now understood it. And because of that tradition and their studies, it's likely that they came to find the Christ child. What we also know about the journey, based on where they came from, is that it was a long one. It appears, this is a bit of a guess, but it appears that it was probably a 900-mile journey. So this took some considerable work to arrive uh, to see the Christ child uh, in that small town. It probably took at least three months, 900 miles, three months. I'm about ready to get in a car this evening and travel a thousand miles, and it won't take three months. Uh, it was a long, arduous journey. And to make such a journey over such a long period of time and a long distance, it's likely that they carried with them a large company of others. So when they entered the town, it was a big event. It wasn't just three camels and three wise men. It may have been three camels and three wise men and gifts and attendants and even guards because routinely, again, these people were part of the king's court. So their arrival in, in, in the, the area would have been something that would have been rather spectacular and stirred a lot of curiosity. What we also know is that there was a star. What we don't know is what was that star. All kinds of speculation concerning what the star was. Some suggest that it was a comet, a supernova, uh, an alignment of the planets in just the right way to shine over the place where the young child was. Or some people think it was just a supernatural astrological phenomena created by God. And others think maybe it was literally an angel who lit the way as a star in the heavens. We don't know. What we do know is that there was a star distinct from every other that God used to point out Jesus Christ to the Magi, and they arrived. Now, those Magi are interesting, but we know little about them. There is one key figure in this story that we know a lot about, and his name is King Herod. King Herod was an amazing man. He was a politician and a power broker par excellence. He worked for Rome. He was appointed by Rome to be king over Judea and Galilee. He kept the peace as the governor and the king. He did the bidding of Rome. And he was very, very important to them because this region was open to all kinds of revolutions and hostility. And King Herod kept a heavy thumb on all of that. Not only that, he was a skillful politician with the people he served. So he knew the Sanhedrin very well, the ruling establishment among the Jewish people. 
And he worked with them and bribed them and paid them off and did everything he could to stay in power with those authorities. Something else we know about him, he was a grand builder. Uh, He built uh, magnificent buildings. Most of the time, when he built buildings, he did it for his own fame and glory, but there was a side effect. It always helped the economy. It also bought him favor when he built buildings for the economy. He reduced taxes routinely to keep people on his side. On one occasion, there was a massive famine in his region. And during that massive famine, the tradition says that he actually melted down a major amount of gold from his various locations where he lived, melted the gold down and sent it to Egypt in order to get food for the people, grain for the farmers, sheep and cattle, and uh, to supply the needs of his people. Now, having said all that, you think to yourself, wow, that's a grand king. He's a big man. He seems to be a little sinister. No, really sinister. Everything King Herod did, King Herod did for one person and one person only, himself. He was absolutely powerful and intended to keep it that way. Um, When you're that kind of king, or shall we just use the, the word dictator, you got enemies. And on one particular occasion, and there may have been more than one, there was a plot to assassinate the king. King Herod found out about the plot, found out who the perpetrators of this plan were, and once they were found out and arrested, well, you would expect they would be summarily executed. Summarily executed would be too quick for Herod. Herod tortured them to the point of death, and then he killed them. King Herod married a woman, uh, among others, he had more than one wife, who was from the lineage of the Maccabees, a very important key figure in the intertestamental period for the people of uh, the Jewish uh, descendants. And the Maccabees was an important name, and he knew full well that if he married into the Maccabees family, he would perhaps have more of the sympathy of those who were Jews that he was ruling. And why did he do that? Because he wasn't a Jew himself. He was actually not fully Jewish. His wife and his mother-in-law from that Maccabee heritage convinced him that he needed to do more. And one of the ways he could do more, they said, is he could appoint his brother-in-law, who would of course be the queen's brother, to be the high priest of the nation of Israel. So Herod appointed him to be the high priest. There was only one problem. Herod couldn't stand competition. And the high priest of Israel was very highly regarded. And this particular high priest, who was his brother-in-law, seemed to have a way about him that wooed the people tremendously. They had remarkable admiration for him. And it bothered Herod enormously. So he conceived of a plot to get rid of his brother-in-law. Now, this is an interesting story. Josephus tells it this way. He gathered all the people in the region that would come to basically a gigantic party. They had a swimming party in the River Jordan. And the king 
And the high priest, his brother-in-law, sat up high on the banks as if it was beneath their dignity to enter the water. And then after a little bit of time, Herod continued to chide the high priest, his brother-in-law, to go in swimming with him. They went into the water, and unbeknownst to his brother-in-law, some of the king's henchmen who were already in the water had a plan for him. They grabbed him and shoved him under the waters, making it look like, to begin with, it was just sport. It was fun among boys. And they kept him down long enough until he drowned. Herod made a dramatic public display of grief over his brother-in-law's death. But the insiders knew he'd been murdered. On two different occasions, Herod took a visit to Rome to see the emperor. And he was so concerned about his power, he told those he left behind, if I do not come back alive, I want you to kill my wife. Because she undoubtedly will take over the reins. On the second visit, he came back and the person he had given orders to, to kill his wife, he had not returned that particular member of the court had an affair with his wife. So he murdered him. Before it's all over, he murders his wife, her mother, and three of his sons. Caesar said concerning Herod in an offhanded comment that has a lot of truth to it, it was safer to be Herod's pig than to be his son. That's the kind of man Herod was. One more fact about Herod, and I'll be done. Herod knew that he was not beloved. He knew he was hated. And he realized upon his death, no one would mourn his death. So he had a plan for that too. Shortly before his death, he rounded up, arrested a number of people who were his enemies. And he instructed that at the time of his death, they would all be executed because someone would be crying when he died. You know, it's no wonder that the text tells us that when the wise men came into town and announced there was a king born, a king of the Jews, Herod was disturbed. And remember the other phrase, and all the people with him. Of course they were disturbed, not because they liked Herod, but because they knew the repercussions of Herod being challenged. And undoubtedly, they worried that something dramatic and terrible would happen, and it did. When Herod's plan was thwarted by the wise men, he killed every child two years and under, an indication that Jesus might have been about two years old at the time. This is typical of Herod. Now, there's a human king named Herod. Let's contrast him with the eternal king, namely Jesus. A small child who would grow, and his followers would proclaim himself the Lord of the universe. For that king, dramatic contrast. In that king's coming, our earthliness was dignified because he came into our flesh. 
And that king's coming, it was announced to shepherds, and shepherds went immediately to a manger, to a stable. In that king's coming, there were probably more animals that observed the birth, the birth than humans. In that king's coming, there was blood, sweat, tears, an umbilical cord, pain, and obscurity. In that king's coming, our king, we realize that that king worked in the shop of a carpenter, doing manual labor like so many other people. In that king's coming, we realize that he called people to follow him. Who do you think of when you think of his followers? Fishermen. For the most part, fishermen, people of ordinary status. And with that king's coming, women were welcomed into his presence to hear, to be taught, and to be named. Rabbis never let women in their presence. They could not be taught, and a rabbi would never name them. We know the names of people who were very important to Jesus' ministry, and they were women. He was a king who bent down and was with children. Kings didn't do that, but this king did. They were ignored for the most part, and Jesus said, no, bring them to me because this is an example of what the kingdom of God is like. This king Jesus, in contrast to Herod, This king, Jesus, did not despise any minorities. He took in the Samaritans, he gave them the good news, and they expanded that good news. He took scorned people into his inner circle, like tax collectors, who everybody hated, becoming his disciples. This king, Jesus, he touched the outcasts like the lepers. He touched and healed the blind. And more important than anything else, this King Jesus was said to be a friend of sinners. Uh, We hold that one close. We think it's great. We think it's so dear. Do you realize how scandalous it would have been in the first century? That this rabbi who was to be king would be a friend of of sinners and publicans and harlots. He was, he was with them, a friend of sinners, and thus a friend of you and me. What an incredible contrast between King Jesus and King Herod. Of course, we could go on about that, couldn't we? But let's just stop right there. And focus on a couple of things. First is a question. With that contrast between King Herod and and King Jesus, who do you want to emulate? Who do you want to serve? You say, well, (laughs) that's awesome, buddy, Jesus. (laughs) You got the right answer. Of course, that's the obvious answer. We want to serve King Jesus. King Jesus, the Prince of Peace. We don't want to serve a Herod who's self-centered, 
prideful, nasty, vindictive, and dangerous. We want to serve King Jesus, who loves everyone and has our best interest in mind. There's only one twist to that. You might have expected this was coming. It's an easy choice. It's an easy choice to say, I want to serve and follow King Jesus. Except for one thing. You see, Herod was maniacal. He was brutal. He was a murderer. He was an absolutely wicked man. About that there can be no doubt. But there's something else about Herod that I find striking simil- strikingly similar to, to me. At the core of who King Herod was, was self-centeredness. It was all about Herod. You know the difference between Herod and me? Well, apart from the fact that I'm a Christ follower, the major difference between Herod and me is he had unbelievable power to do whatever he wished. And he had no self-constraint on his own internal selfishness. And so he served himself and himself alone. When I look at the picture of King Herod and I realize that at the base of it is in some form humanity, I'm alarmed by it. And I'm reminded of the famous statement from Lord Acton, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. The point, my friends, as dark as it may seem on this wonderful Christmas season of the year, the point is this, that there's something deep within all of us that could be Herod-like Something so introverted and self-centered that if with no constraints on us, we could turn that way. Maybe not in the same detail. That's why the message of Christmas is more than just a baby in a manger. It's more than a delightful Christ child. It's more than the beauty that we place in front of us. It's, It's about this message. That He came to save his people from their sins. He came to rescue us not from oppressors, but from ourselves. He came to deliver us from our own self-centeredness, our own selfishness. Jesus came to redeem us from that because left to our own devices, we're self-destructive because we're so sinful. Now, here's the good news. The good news is he came, and he took the penalty for our sins on the cross, and he died and he rose again. And the good news is he calls us to worship, to worship. He calls us to worship with the knowledge that we have. By the way, we don't know what kind of knowledge the wise men had. We really have no idea what they understood concerning King Jesus. 
We can ascribe motivation and intent to them, but we don't know. What we do know is this. With the knowledge they had, they worshipped him. You may be here this morning and say to yourself, I really don't have that much knowledge of Jesus. I got a little. Not so much. I want to tell you, whatever you have is enough for worship. It doesn't require any more to bow down and worship the king. So with whatever knowledge you have, enter into worship. Because worship, among other things, moves us away from self-centeredness. Worship also is only fit for a king. So in worship, we give the best of ourselves, everything we have, to King Jesus. In worship, we demonstrate what I'll just call self-surrender. In worship to Jesus, we say, Lord Jesus, I understand that I'm so introverted and turned inward that I'm bad for myself. I not only need the constraints that are necessary to keep me in line, I need you, Lord Jesus, to be my Lord and my Savior. I need to walk with you. It's my only hope. Please, Lord Jesus, be my Savior. You know what's so uh, fascinating about worship? Not just Sunday morning but true extended worship. When you worship the king, you become more like him. It's automatic. And there's no better time to commit or recommit to worshiping the king than on a day like this. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for uh, the stories of the New Testament and the Old Of course, stories we believe to be true, and they're not just legends of wise men and stories about what we hope God would be like in the flesh. They're stories about real people who encountered Jesus, the real human Jesus who was fully man and fully God. And Lord, we thank you for those encounters which are an example to us of the possibility of a a growing faith in you. We thank you for so many people we've studied throughout this semester who've encountered you and because of various needs that were identified in their encounter with you, they surrender their lives to you. And every time we hear a story like that, Lord, we're reminded of the importance of our lives being surrendered to you. And so week after week, we meet in worship, Lord, and we recommit ourselves to following you. We consider your word. We sing your praises. We do our best through worship to understand you more deeply and become more like you. And we pray especially in this uh, Christmas season that you will give us the heart of worship and the heart to follow. 
I pray, Lord, for those who may be here uh, or will be here for a Christmas Eve service or another time this year who have not made that commitment to follow you. Lord, impress upon their hearts that it doesn't happen accidentally. It happens deliberately. When they encounter you, through the word or the proclamation of the word or the music or the reading of scripture or even the images on a stage, they encounter you for a reason. And the reason is to make a decision. So Lord, I pray that this morning uh, someone will make that decision to follow you. That they will say, my life... (laughs) on my own, is self-destructive and not good for me or anybody, but my life surrendered to King Jesus changes everything and gives me eternal life. So I turn to you, Jesus, as my Lord and Savior. Thank you that you are our Lord and Savior, that you call us to follow you, and we pray that you will give us, especially in this season, the joy that has come to the world because of your presence. Through Christ our Lord we pray. Amen.